Welcome to the Divorce Survival Guide podcast, where we have open and honest conversations about co-parenting, separation, divorce, and the hardest question of all, should you stay or should you go? I'm Kate Anthony, your Divorce Survival Guide, and I'm here to help you navigate some of the roughest waters you've ever swum in and answer some of your toughest questions. I've been to hell and back, and now it's my mission in life to help you get to the other side of this process with your sanity and your heart intact. Hey everyone, welcome back. So I wanted to let you know about something that I am working on and involved in. It's called the Divorce Coalition, and we are a group of divorce professionals who are uh, working actively to fight domestic violence, and it is the first week of October, and in the U.S., uh, October is National Domestic Violence Awareness Month. I don't know if that's just the U.S., is it? Or is it everywhere? should be everywhere. <laughs> anyway, as we know, domestic violence affects millions of lives worldwide, and it is important for us to come together as a coalition to take a stand and take action. Um, as we know, domestic violence can happen to anyone, regardless of gender, age, or background. It is not just physical. As you all know, it includes emotional, psychological, financial, spiritual, and all of the things. Um, so we are using this month to spread awareness, education, and support for survivors. If you guys head on over to Instagram, you can find the Divorce Coalition there. I will be posting a lot more about it throughout the month because, you know, I talk about this stuff all the time and in this month of October, it's really important that we just heighten our conversations and awareness uh, around domestic violence because it is not going away and it is not getting better. It's somewhat getting worse, but it's also, I feel energetically, it's sort of coming to a head, right? It's the, it's the last gasps before the death, right? Like so many things in our culture, um, whether it's, you know, white supremacy, patriarchy, domestic violence, all of the things that are linked, these are all linked, there is this sort of final death rattle happening. And I very much, you know, I think it's going to be a while before <laughs> the actual death, but we need to be talking about this more and more and more and more. That's where we're going this October, but we're starting October on a little bit of a different note. We're going to start the month off with this episode, which is about love, love every day with Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Dr. Solomon, who is a dear friend and colleague, has a new book coming out. And it is called Love Every Day. And it's out, I think, uh, now. You can get this book right now, which is why we're airing this episode right now. <laughs> so part of this book's premise is that love does need to be a daily practice. And in her book, 
She shares insights and wisdom about how to show up for the relationships in your life. And she also shared them today on the podcast. For those of you who don't know, Dr. Alexandra Solomon is internationally recognized as today's most trusted relationship voice. Her relational self-awareness framework has reached millions of people around the globe. Uh, She's a couples therapist, a speaker, an author, and professor. She actually literally teaches healthy relationships at Northwestern, y'all. She's like the only person I know who actually teaches how to have a healthy relationship in at the college level. Amazing. Um, she's also the host of the podcast, Reimagining Love. Um, and as I said, her new book, Love Every Day, is on sale right now. So please go get this book. It's amazing. I have read it and I love it. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Dr. Alexandra Solomon, I am so happy to have you back on the show. Thank you so much for coming. I'm so glad to be back. Thanks for inviting me back again. Yeah. So, okay. You have a new book coming out. This is so exciting. (laughs) Um, Love every day. Every day. So (laughs) every day. day. (laughs) So, you know, part of, I think what the premise of this book is, is that love needs to be a daily practice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. why is that? Like, why can't we just be like, I love you. And then like, that's it. <laughs> right, right, right. Or why can't we do, you know, eight therapy sessions and mm, be done? Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, it is the, what what we want and really what we need from our intimate partnerships today is of an entirely different quality and order and scope than generations before. I think what's available to us, you know, we are, we're living and loving in such an exciting time. Like I know that you, you're so in touch with, you know, on social media and so tied in, like, it's really so exciting to me. Like I started this work as a couples therapist and a psychologist and a relationship educator, whatever, 20 plus years ago, where the only way you could have a microphone is if somebody, you know, if a, if a reporter was writing a story or if somebody was doing a, a TV spot, I would get to go on the air or have a quote in an article, you know, and that was really the way that information got shared. And we're living in a time where there's so much relationship education, relationship kind of like micro dose of learnings that are available that um, we almost have a little bit of a different problem now of there's like a fire hose of, you know, yeah. TikTok and all of So this yeah. book, this book really is a chance for people to have a trusted source they can go to each day and just kind of return to center of what is most important in terms of how I want to show up for myself and for the people who mattered for me, who mattered to me for my intimate mm-hmm. partnerships. And this is, we did the book in a way where whether you are in a relationship or between relationships, you are able to every day have that little reminder of what matters most and and what's needed in terms of how to show up for intimate partnership. And I like that you say whether you're in the relationship or not, right? Because there's so much of this self-work that goes into being able to show up for a healthy partnership, right? It's not just like this person shows up and then you know, we ride off into the sunset together. There's all of this, you know, and, you know, as you say, in this information age, this is like, 
we have access to so much personal mm-hmm. development work now, right? Yeah. Which our parents really didn't have. Whether you're in a relationship right now or not, this is important. Your book can can help, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Almost, yeah. almost as a training I, ground, <laughs> right? I'm so impressed by the way that young people are coming into their sexuality, coming into their dating lives, learning, like they're, they're reaching for resources at a much younger age. I've been teaching at Northwestern for over 20 years. And I think that the the students I teach now come in with so much more wisdom and awareness than students of 25 years ago. So I can like feel that cultural shift, but Mm -hmm. the truth of it is most of us come into self-development work after life has kicked our asses a couple of times, you know, where Mm -hmm. we've had some heartbreak where, um, you know, people are sort of like, okay, so I guess it's not just what the song lyrics told me and what the romantic mythology told me is that you just find the right person, you find the one, you find your soulmate, and as you say, you know, kind of ride off into the sunset. Um, so, so often it is like through heartbreak or through struggle that we notice, ah, oh, maybe there's something I got to learn about myself. You know, not mm-hmm. that, not that any of this is about blaming ourselves, but it is about becoming curious about the patterns and the blind spots that we all bring in and the ways in which loving somebody else, intimate partnership is the one of the most powerful crucibles for growth and healing and transformation if we allow it to be, if we turn towards that. That's right. That's right. I love that. I love that, you know, it is such an opportunity, right? Being in intimate relationship is such an opportunity. Having a and you know, for my listeners, having a relationship fall apart or be questioning what's happening in the relationship is such an opportunity to dig deeply into and so much that you cover in this book. I want to touch on, you talk about relational self-awareness, which I think is sort of part and parcel of what we're talking about, right? That's your framework. Mm -hmm. Can you say more about what that is and what that means to you? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the 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 through line in all of the work that I do is this relational self awareness. So relational self awareness is a it's a practice, it's a mindset, it's a paradigm shift. It is the ongoing curious and compassionate relationship we develop with ourselves mm-hmm. that becomes the foundation of a healthy, thriving, intimate partnership. It is it is the willingness to again and again be students of our own reactivity. Mm, which which doesn't mean that. that our partners don't sometimes behave in really gnarly, unfortunate, thoughtless ways. It's not about right. letting our partners off the hook necessarily, but it is about keeping ourselves in the ring and understanding the power of our reactions, right? That we have, and I think especially, I, I imagine much like my podcast audience, I imagine your podcast audience is mostly women. Yep. And so- um, I think that as women, because we have been told from such an early age that our role is to be pleasers and to not rock the boat, I think that we also can miss how incredibly powerful we are. And if there's one thing I've learned from being a couples therapist for decades and decades is is the power that women have, especially in, in intimate partnerships with men. I think women yeah. miss how deeply rooted men are in how they're being perceived by their female partners. Um you know, it's, it's what I have been struck by over and over again when I'm sitting with a heterosexual couple, how much he's anchoring his sense of worthiness and okayness on the inside based on her, how she's, you know, the look in her eyes, the look on her uh-huh. face, whether, so I think, yeah. I think women have missed that because 
because women, I think, really often and easily feel pretty invisible. So how, like, how do you sort of bridge that gap, right? Where he, and this, and by the way, I just want to sort of preface this whole thing with, we are talking about not abusive relationships, right? I mean, in an abusive relationship, I think what you're saying is also true, but the process and the end goal is actually, is not the same, right? When Mm. power and control is the goal, not intimate love. And I think that I think that so many women miss that difference, right? Because, you know, if you're married to a narcissist, your vision of them does define them, right? But not in a healthy way, not in a way that you can ever meet or match Mm -hmm. or interact with, right? Yes. And the narcissist watching your reaction to them is so that they can stay one step ahead and manage your reaction. And so in a healthy relationship, it is what is it? I mean, like, and, and is that, it doesn't sound all that healthy if his sort of esteem is derived of your responses, right? right. Or the look in your eye, right? So how do you work with that? Right, right. No, you're right. And that is, and I think that one of the, I mean, I think one of the problems with how we socialize boys and men in our culture is yeah, like the first, you know, right. some of the first messages that boys get is that their worth is dependent on their ability to get a girl to like them or to get a girl to have sex with them or be sexual with them, right? So that's mm-hmm. the, then the grown-up version of that is, you know, how pleased she is by me is mm-hmm. the sum total of my worth. And it's way too much. It's way too much responsibility on a female mm-hmm. partner. Of course, of course, of course. So it's why, you know, it's why I'm forever on this growing edge of how do we invite men into this work, you know, and, and that's one of the biggest challenges I'm bumping up against. I'm sure you are too, is that women are like, women have got the book stacked up. They've got the podcast in their ears. They're going and they are coming, they're showing up in their relationships with a kind of vocabulary and frameworks that are um, exceeding their male partners. And um, I think that is, I don't, I don't have that problem solved. I'm super curious how you're working with it and thinking about it. And again, not, not talking about abuse, but just talking about kind of normative what we call normative masculine elixithymia, right? Like elixithymia meaning having having an absence of language for your emotions, an absence of pathways for how you access and verbalize what's going on inside of you. Like that is normative in a patriarchal culture where we don't teach boys. You know, I think about like, just the messages we give to little boys, like boys are easy and girls are hard. You know, boys are low maintenance and girls are high maintenance, all this bullshit. No, boys are as emotionally and oh. psychologically complex as girls. Oh, you know, I have one. I'll talk. <laughs> can confirm. Can confirm. confirm. My son. Uh, <laughs> and my son has got his emotions on his sleeve. We're unpacking them. We're sorting them. My daughter's like a little vault. I'm like knocking on the door. Hello. You know, can yeah. I get hello? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, yeah. Right. They're, they're as complex. And if not more so because of the cultural expectations and the squashing and, you know, yeah. uh, you know, and so... I'm so with you on this. Like, how do we invite men to the table? Like, how do we do this? And I do think that we're at this. I don't know if we've reached the tipping point, but we're somewhere around it, right? Where certainly women my age or, you know, our age who are single, like I'm, I'm not having it, right? Like I am not going to date someone. I'm not going to put, and women are, you know, leaving their marriages because of this. And men, there's a crisis of men finding themselves 
you know, unpartnered and kind of not really knowing what to do with it. And it's shortening their lifespans, right? Mm -hmm. There's like all sorts of ramifications here. It's like, I want us to figure out what is the good enough? Because I know there are Mm -hmm. some conversations that are just the conversations I'm going to keep having with my girlfriends, you know, like these sort of women's women's spaces where, where we're kind of breaking things down and, you know, looking at that. I don't, that I don't necessarily need to have from my male partner or frankly, even want to have, but there needs to be a basic foundation of literacy, availability, accessibility to kind of look at things, you know, in a, in a relational way. Yes. So I don't want, I, I guess I want to make sure that women, I want to really help women kind of hold on to a vision of good enough, you know, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. and not this, and not the same, like to have a male partner who's got kind of a basic competence and accessibility and availability, even if he doesn't have the same, isn't able to stay in a conversation for as long or isn't, you know, I don't, so I don't, I want it to be like that. We don't grade men on the same scale as women necessarily, but that there's, but that we also don't have a world where women are feeling like they have to either sell themselves short or wait around until somebody is as literate as they are. Yeah. I think that's really important. I like, I, I like the way that you frame that because it is important that, you know, men, men are not women with penises, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> they are, they're different <laughs> beings, they're different beings. And sometimes we expect that. And the emotional intimacy that, you know, female friends have that you sit around and you, and you talk and you dissect and you pull apart and all that stuff. Like men are, most men are not, not all, but most men are not actually gonna, that's not their, that is not their competency, right? That's not their, their forte. And that doesn't mean that they don't have other things that are extraordinary about them. But this idea that we should have all of our emotional needs met by this one person in our home is unfair. Right. So I think that, so that's part of what I think the appeal, it's why, it's why I love the podcast I do, because I think asking, Mm -hmm. I, I love when I hear stories about women asking a male partner to listen to this podcast or the format of this book, Love Every Day. Maybe mm-hmm. he's not opening the book every day, but maybe she once a week has found up, you know, found an entry that she would like to have conversation with him about. Like, sort of, how do you know? I think there are ways in which women. I want women to not do more labor, but to just have effective routes of how they can bring a kind of conversation opener or a curious question where it's it feels inviting and opening rather than pressure. Because I think what so often happens is he doesn't want to disappoint, but he also knows damn well that he can't keep up with her or he can't go as long as her, you know, and he's afraid of disappointing. And then he sometimes gets defensive and kind of pops out of the whole thing. So I like this idea of, of, of um, having sort of gentle openers, curious questions so that a couple can open up a conversation, feel that yeah. sense of emotional closeness, and then, you know, move on to the business of, of whatever else their day is going to be filled, filled with. Carpooling children and whatever else there is, right? Yeah. Uh-huh, making dinner. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And I think, and this is part of this framework, right? A relational self-awareness, right? That you knowing, well, I mean, let's look at, at the, the, the way that you've broken it down, right? So you've got nine central themes of relational self-awareness mm-hmm. throughout the mm-hmm. book. And understanding and knowing yourself is sort of at the core of almost yeah. all of them, really, right? Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to go through the nine 
I think probably the best way, yeah, I think probably the best way to talk about it is it's about understanding, I mean, a big, a a big theme, I would say the central Mm -hmm. theme, if I had to like sort of say what's most important about relational self-awareness is understanding how the past shapes you today, how so much of how we respond to a moment with our partner is deeply tied in ways we aren't always aware of to our earlier experiences or experiences with prior partners, but very often experiences in our family of origin. And sometimes we're talking about trauma. Sometimes it really is the ways in which trauma shapes, understandably distorts, you know, amplifies a present moment. But it's also things like the role we played in our family growing up, how we saw our parents deal with frustration and difficulty. So it's not always just about trauma. It's about just kind of those early, what I call your original love classroom. Like mm. you're, when we, when we're little and our family's growing up, we are forever watching how the big people do relationships as well as being enlisted to play a particular role in our family. You know, if we were the perfect child or we were the invisible one or we were the easy one, that that's how we come to know ourselves in relationship and that will play out in our intimate relationships and and it's not whether or not it happens it's do we have processes to bring that into our awareness to understand that how we respond to a moment with our partner is not purely just about how i feel and how you feel it's also about the ghosts that are in the room mm. and it's my mm-hmm. ghosts and it's your ghosts and so it's not ever about blaming or throwing our parents under the bus because our parents by and large do the best they can you know with with their skills and ability and awareness at that time but until and unless we understand how the past shapes like what my tendencies are i tend to start to feel this way um that kind of here we go again feeling that that is sometimes about our partner, but very often it's about earlier experiences. It started long before we even knew our partner. So that really is the heart of the most important element of relational self-awareness is understanding how early experiences shape how we feel today with a partner. I love that. I think that's so, that's a central sort of theme of my work too, right? Mm. You cannot figure out, you know, whether you're going to stay in or leave a relationship without examining yourself, without examining what you bring to the table and what your history is and your relationship mapping is, as I call it, right? Same thing. This is why the the divorce rate for second and third marriages is so much higher <laughs> like it gets mm. because, you know, you're tossing out the person and then you're mm. marrying someone else, but you're still there, right? right. Wherever you right. go, there you are. Yes. Yeah, which doesn't mean that the first marriage shouldn't have ended, but it certainly does mean that that is such a ripe time for integration and healing is is when you are coming up out of a relationship that has ended, you know, for for whatever reasons, that is how we kind of stack the deck in our favor going forward. Yeah, because it is, I mean, everything in our culture teaches us that once you find the right person, you're going to be fine. So it makes so much sense that people rush headlong into second marriage thinking, oh, thank God. Thank God I won't ever have to feel that way again. And then sadly, you know, in a few years they do and they're like, wait, what, what happened? Mm -hmm. Right. And it's not your fault, right? It's not your fault. You're just, there's just this, this whole, this, this rock that we still have to unearth. So, and a partner who also has their own blind spots and triggers that, you know, and in, inevitably they kind of, it's, it's, you know, it, it never stops fascinating me the way in which we tend to partner with somebody where we, where we will again and again have a chance to address the thing that is so very hard for us. So we are inadvertently tripping over our partner's triggers 
at the same time that they're inadvertently tripping over ours. So that's, that's why right. it's so important for couples to develop this relational frame of the more I do this, the more you do this. And the more you do this, the more I do this. And we each inadvertently kind of confirm our worst case scenario, that you're going to reject me, that I am not enough, that if you really saw me, you couldn't love me. All these kind of core fears that we don't mean to trip you know, in our partner. And, and yet we do, and we will. It's why relationships can also become a catalyst for healing is that then we have right. a chance to say, oh, wait, here's that old story that mm-hmm. I'm not enough. And yes. how am I going, how am I going to tend to myself? How am I going to soothe myself? And how am I going to ask you to soothe me? You right. know, how am I going to ask you to, to comfort me when I'm feeling a bit insecure? Not because I can't do it myself, but because I get to do it differently now. When I was little, I couldn't receive comfort because the grownups were whatever, lost in addiction or lost in pain or working too hard, you know, and they couldn't comfort me. But now I can in this relationship, both ask for comfort and comfort myself. Mm-hmm. And re- and be open to receiving it, right? Because I think that if you've never experienced it, even though you might crave it, there's like, there's no landing strip for it, right? You don't have a slot <laughs> for that to go into, no. even though mm-hmm. you're, cra- you're desperate for it, right? You may not even know how to receive it. No, no. And so then it's like, you're only doing this because I asked you to, or (laughs) if I receive this, what am I going to have to give you in return? It's very threatening. Receiving is way more threatening than we think it is. I think that Mm -hmm. is so often I'm struck by how that can be a challenge when a partner is there and available and really ready to provide comfort because it feels good to provide comfort. It feels good to be somebody's soft place to land. Mm -hmm. How really, truly threatening that can feel to somebody who has learned how to do without. I so relate to that, right? Because I'm a constant giver, you know, in relationships. <laughs> and I think sometimes that's because I don't quite know how to, you know, let it land. And I mean, obviously, it's something that I work on. It is like, that's the challenge for me, because I certainly never experienced that as a child. And, you know, and so being able to stop, just like, shut the fuck up and let this and and just receive it. <laughs> shut the fuck up and receive. Right. That's hard. Fewer questions, fewer quests. Right. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But yeah. your whole nervous system is like, is, you know, just like, yes, but yes, but yes, but. Mm-hmm. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Wait, that's me. I know I have a lot of podcast episodes for you to get through, and it can be really, really overwhelming to try and figure out where to start or to comb through which ones might be uh, appropriate for you, whether you're trying to decide whether to stay or go, or you're already on the other side of the divorce process. Like, how do you know what to listen to? I have solved the problem for you. All you have to do is go to kateanthony.com slash playlist. Answer a few short questions, and I will send you a curated list of podcast episodes to best support you as you navigate these tricky waters. I'll also help you identify where you currently stand on this journey and what's ahead with resources to help you move through this process with knowledge and grace. So all you need to do is go to kateanthony.com slash playlist, answer a few short questions, and you will have your curated list of podcast episodes that will support you wherever you are in your journey. And now back to our show. I want to talk about this idea of being a team in a relationship, which is part of part of this um, framework that you talk about, like how to approach challenges like intimacy or, you know, sexual issues yeah. or just right. 
as a team, which I think is so foreign to most people because usually when there's an issue, we're fighting over (laughs) the Mm -hmm. issue, right? It's between us. So how do you help people or what do you suggest? How do you get people to sort of look at this as a team? This is one of my favorite parts of, of, you know, working with relational self-awareness is helping people develop like relational ways of thinking about their challenges because it's so, I mean, sex is a great example. One of the most common sexual problems for couples, if not the most, is what's called a desire discrepancy. Yes. You know, partner Uh A wants sex more frequently than partner B does. This is 80% of couples are dealing with desire discrepancy because what the hell are the chances that both people are going to want the same sexual experiences at the same frequency? So desire discrepancies happen. But until until it's even calling it a desire discrepancy is so incredibly helpful because what it says is we have a problem. The problem is there's a discrepancy. Until a couple has that language, what it feels like is you know, partner A wants sex more often. And so partner B feels pressured. They feel like they're the gatekeeper. They feel like they're constantly disappointing. They feel like they're, you know, pressured. They feel like they're, you know, it's, it's a will we won't me. And the partner who wants sex more often is feeling like, why don't they love me? Why don't they want me? Why don't the things that matter to me matter to them? And so it becomes this kind of like, who is the problem? Does, does partner A want it too much? Or does partner B want it not enough? You know, and it becomes like sort of a, a hot potato of, who's screwing this up, who's to blame. But the moment you call it a desire discrepancy, it invites the couple to say, huh, we have a, like, this is a we problem. We have a discrepancy between, between how often, you know, between our our desires, between our libidos, between how our, our appetites, it's not about pointing the finger of who's too much and who's too little. It's how do we as a couple navigate this difference between us. And so just that framing opens up new pathways for how the couple can imagine it, talk about it, you know, trial and error it, but you can't get there until you have a relational frame, until you have a team frame. Another one that I came up with um, recently on the podcast was talking about a pace discrepancy. So Mm -hmm. rather than one person is ready to move in and the Mm -hmm. other person isn't ready to move in, and the one who's ready to move in is like, why isn't the other person committed? I I have an emotionally unavailable partner. My partner Mm -hmm. doesn't love me as much as I love them. And the other one is like, why is there so much pressure? And you know, I'm never enough for this person. No, you have a pace discrepancy. What are the chances that two people are going to arrive at the very same moment in terms of readiness for the next step in the transition? But the difference between my readiness and your readiness it's a space that is ripe for tenderness and for conflict and for fearful stories to creep in. Mm-hmm. So framing mm-hmm. it as a pace, this, this couple has a pace discrepancy. They aren't quite ready at the same time. If we frame it that way, again, a bunch of new avenues open up for, you know, what is the, what's, what might help you get a bit more ready? What might help you be a bit more patient? You know, now we have new questions that we can ask each other. So that relational teamwork frame is so, so, so important. I love that. It puts the issue, right? It it asks you instead of standing over a problem and fighting over it and pushing and pulling to stand shoulder to shoulder and look at mm. it and go, how do we solve? Like, this is a problem we have. How do yeah. we solve it? Yeah. Not what are you doing wrong? <laughs> or right. I'm right, you're wrong. <laughs> right. That's right. But there's a good way and a bad way. Mm-hmm, right. There's a better way. There's a healthy way and a sick way. All of that kind of binary stuff is just, it, it, it makes a problem worse. You know, that, 
Right. The, the way a couple looks at a problem has the power to ameliorate the problem or, you know, or further entrench the problem and looking at trying to figure out who, whose fault this is or who's, you know, taking the wrong stance is going to keep the problem stuck because now we're in a fight for, you know, defending our position or our experience. Whenever you're asked to defend your experience, it just, it further entrenches your experience, right? It keeps mm-hmm. you stuck in, especially if yeah. you had, especially if you grew up in a family where your experiences were repeatedly and systematically denied or diminished. Now you're going to dig in yeah. and you're going to get it's stuck me. in a spot. That's, yeah. And you're going to get stuck somewhere that's maybe more extreme. Like shit, I actually did kind of move in with, did want to move in with them. But now that I've got to defend why it's okay to not be ready, I'm going to be even less ready. So how do you like in this sort of team framework, right? We are still attempting to get our needs met in a relationship, mm-hmm. right? Like that's sort of that, like that's a human um, desire, need, whatever. Right. So how do we get our needs met while also having a team perspective, getting my needs met almost feels like a binary, right. But I'm also wanting to meet your needs. Right. So how, how does that, where's the sort of, where do those weave together? Well, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this as well, but if we, if we stay with this example of kind of moving in together, Okay. It's 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 one where you can really see, like either we're living in the same house or we're not living in the same house. You can really kind of see who right. quote unquote has won or what point at which they've, you know, quote unquote won. But I think what I what I want couples to do is really understand kind of like what are what are the fears or hesitations that are kind of hanging out beneath each of their positions. So if the one who's feeling a bit more hesitant about moving in together, if their fear is loss of autonomy. Mm-hmm. loss of private time, loss of privacy, loss of the ability to kind of come and go with some, you know, agility that they've become used to. If they can start to verbalize that, then the couple can get creative about how might we share space, but really continue to honor freedom mm-hmm. and honor mm-hmm. sovereignty and honor, you know, the ability to to be on your own. So I think that it's getting, you know, when we're stuck in the power dynamic of are we going to move in together or are we not going to move in together? what's being missed are the fears underneath. And so if we can start to unearth those, you know, the the fear for the one who wants to move in together, perhaps their fear is that you're going to leave, that there's, I don't have security. And I grew up without a lot of security. And so I value security. Okay. So how do we maybe keep our separate residences, at least for now, while also creating a sense of security? By what other means might you be able to feel secure? By what other means might you be able to trust that I'm not going anywhere, even if we are not in this moment living under the same roof? So by getting underneath the power struggle or the decision or the um, you know, the problem, we can start to like illuminate what are the what are the fears, what are the questions, what are the yeah. worries, and by what other means might people have their needs met or their fears really respected, you know? Yeah. I love that. I love that. Right. Because it's not just, I don't want to move in with you. Right. Because the, the one partner feels rejected, right. It's sure. right. I, I love you. I want to be with you. And the need that I need to get met is autonomy. I don't want to lose my identity. Yeah. yeah. I love that. Get, getting underneath the problem. Cause the issue is not moving in together, actually, right? (laughs) When you pull it apart, like that's not the issue. Yeah. But it sure as hell 
feels like it, you know, right. and when you're, and when you're locked into, especially one of those like that, where you can see clearly either we're living together or not living together. We're either having sex or not having sex, but you can really kind of, it feels concrete and you can see it like that. It really does feel like the issue is the issue. It takes that kind of, it takes relational self-awareness to mm-hmm. widen widen the lens and and get really curious about what's coming up for you around this problem. What's coming up for me around this problem? What are the ways that cultural messages inform this? What are the ways that our experiences in our family inform this? So it's 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 getting um almost like becoming well I call it ghost busting, like ghostbusters, like looking yeah, at right. how, you know, what's getting in the way, what else is affecting how each of us is experiencing this problem rather than just digging into the why will you, why won't you, but we should, but we shouldn't. You're so demanding. You're so um, unavailable. You know, all of that stuff that just keeps us us locked in. That's right. Yeah. And I like, you know, touching on cultural issues, right? Cultural identity and all of that. How do you see those playing in, right? In, I mean, (laughs) How do, how do yeah. we not see them playing right. into relationships? But I'm curious to, as to your perspective on that. I think it's easy for us to mm-hmm. miss mm-hmm. The, the very powerful and sneaky ways that cultural messages shape how partners experience problems. And I think it's because, A, it's like telling a fish they're in water. Mm-hmm. You know, we are mm-hmm. all socialized. And so we don't know. We It's it's sometimes we don't even notice the the line between my experience and what the culture has told me my experience should be. We don't even know that we've been socialized. Right. And B, when there's a difference around privilege and marginalization, which there is around any, when a couple has a cultural difference, a man and a woman, a black partner and a white partner, you know, a partner who came from an affluent family and a partner who came from from a lower, lower working class family, those differences Sometimes we don't even notice within our partnership because we feel like a we, we feel like a couple. We don't notice the the sneaky and powerful ways that that um, gender or race or socioeconomic status are shaping how we experience it. And so that is one of yeah. the themes in the book also is really wanting couples to take a look when when they're standing at one of those forks in the road, for example, around moving in together. What are the ways that gender messages are shaping this? You know, I think women can vary. There's around that one. It's like, why would you buy the cow if you can get the milk for free? Like things that I know I heard that stuff growing up. You don't move in with a man until you're married because why would you buy the cow if you get the milk for free? Which is so incredibly problematic. (laughs) So problematic. 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 Yes. You know, and all it's Mm -hmm. so everyone, every one of those kind of like moments in a couple's life, there is this backdrop of gender. What is, who, who is she afraid of becoming? Who is he afraid of becoming, you know, for a straight couple and for queer couples as well. All, you know, those gender messages sneak in as well. And certainly things around race and privilege. And so it's just, it's hard for couples to notice when that's in the mix, but it's so important, right? If something that's coming up around moving in together has to do with, you know, my history in a working class family versus your history in an upper class family, like we we need to take a look at that together and, and really look at look at how the how those early experiences shape how we talk about building a space together, creating a space together. You know, in the beginning of a relationship, 
it's you and me against the world and right. And we don't take a look at Mm -hmm. right until issues arise. And if you don't look at, you know, how your past is informing how you're being in this relationship right now, how your, you know, socioeconomic or cultural, whatever, all of those things, how both internal and external, right? Expectations of men, expectations of women, you know, we live in patriarchy. So again, like that's the air we breathe, but it can be such a, like, it's sort of that rude awakening of like, oh, wait, it's not you and me against the world. It's actually, it can be the world against us or like you have this thing that I don't have or right. Like suddenly Mm -hmm. there, it almost fractures the you and me-ness of it. Yes. Right. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So that's another factor for why, why couples may miss the Mm -hmm. sneaky, but powerful ways that cultural messages are creeping in is because couples don't want to see it because they really want to hold on to the idea that we are the same. And maybe Mm -hmm. right now we're the same because maybe right now we're both, you know, college educated, you know, working professionals. But if one of us grew up with a hungry tummy at times and the other one didn't, it's very different to have security now. Security that's mapped on top of an early history of insecurity is very different than security that one has felt throughout their lives. And it's not a better worse, but until and unless a couple can really understand. And the and the privileged partner, I want that privileged partner to have deep compassion for ways in which that early history may shape a moment like, you know, creating a home together because it's all about. A lot of creating a home together is spending money, you know, creating a sense of style and space and how that space looks and how that space feels and what this neighborhood conveys and what this home conveys. And so that may awaken very powerful stuff in the one who grew up with no economic privilege, even though they're privileged today. If that early history is there, it may be very much awakened, you know, in a moment like this. One of the ways in which sort of looking at this from a team perspective, it almost brings back the, it can, you know, it's like if oh, if we start off totally. as you and me against the world and then all these fractures happen, right? right? Having that understanding and that compassion and empathy and team approach can actually bring back the you and me <laughs> of it all. My favorite example of this is one from many, many years ago, a student of mm-hmm. mine I was teaching, I don't know, so I was I was training these these um graduate students to become couples therapists and I was talking through some I don't know, con, you know, concept or skill and one of my students raised her hand and she said, "Okay, so here's an example. My boyfriend and I moved in together and we have we live in Chicago and we have this one closet. We don't have a lot of space, but my boyfriend went to Costco and he filled this closet floor to ceiling with paper towel." And I'm like, "What the hell?" Why are we stacking up the paper towel? We don't have a lot of space. Why don't we just buy paper towel, you know, a couple of rolls at a time, like normal people, you know, how how, that was her frame around it. And they went back and forth about this, whose way is better, whose way is worse. They were in a power struggle, again, not a huge high stakes one, but one where they really couldn't see eye to eye on this. And Mm -hmm. something happened where he talked about growing up in another part of the world with no economic security and not knowing if he would have enough of what he needed. And so for him, when he opens that closet and he sees that like really big stack of paper towel, it's like the little boy just exhales and feels safe. And then it became 
she was like, are you freaking kidding me? I'm going to keep that closet stacked, stacked with paper right. towel because That's that right. helps you be, a, if I get to have a part in helping you feel safe, are you kidding me? Of yes. course I'll do that. So it totally. There's one missing. I'm going to the store tomorrow. That's right. right? Like, you shall not. You shall not be without. We are taking yeah. care of that little boy together. And yes, that, you know, right. it's just a, an example of what you're saying. I, and I love that, right? Because, you know, this is what I, I often talk about with, you know, m- I think my, ex- one of the, one of the things that I think it has a lot of problems, but one of the things I really like about Imago therapy is that in that very controlled and specific dialogue that you are connecting to the wounding and when you're expressing it, when you're expressing what's happening for you in eye language, when you're saying like, actually, it makes me feel um, this way, I feel scared I, as opposed to you're an asshole. Um, I feel scared. It triggers my childhood wounding of I, what I really need to feel safe yeah. is it just opens up compassion. Like exactly what you're saying, right? All of a sudden someone's like, oh my God, I want that for mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. I want that for you. I want you to have a stack full of paper towels always. Yeah. Right. right. And once the partner has gotten it, I want you to have paper towel always. Actually, the other one is is very likely to need less paper towel, (laughs) you know, that's the thing. Right. I think people get scared if it's people get scared of being in a spot where I'm forever accommodating my partner's wounds. Mm -hmm. I have, you know, and I think, and, and that's, and I don't want people to get stuck there. It is by understanding the wounds and having the wounds honored that then people actually become less triggerable. If you know it and you get it and you have shown me experiences of honoring it, then actually I don't need as much accommodation. You right. Know, Cause I I'm he- now you're, he- you're helping me heal that wound. That's right. That's, that's right. the whole point. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. It's not about, yeah, we don't learn, we don't learn the map of our interior and the map of our partner's interior so that we're on eggshells to not set them off. We learn it because it opens compassion and it gives us a chance to say, I get it. I get that you have a tender spot here and let's figure out how we can nonetheless, you know, still keep me in the ring, keep my needs in the ring, even as I know you have some tenderness here. Yes. It's so, it's really so beautiful when two people are willing, right? And I think mm-hmm. that this is something just my audience needs to hear, right? Is that both people need to be willing to be the team, right? That like, you you can't be a team for two people, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And yeah. that's important. But when yeah. two people are willing to, like you said, like, we don't have to be the same. No, no, we don't have to be the same. And And one, you know, she... May always forever have more robust language or be quicker to put pieces together. Mm-hmm. But if she's got a if she's got a partner who she can see is trying, yeah. I think that matters hugely, right? Hugely, yes, Fumbly, awkward efforts matter and they count. I just did therapy this morning with a couple where it's, you know, the gender, the gender roles are flipped. And the one she she doesn't love this world. <laughs> Of, of emotions and unpacking and exploring. And he does, he could be here. He could do therapy, you know, hours a day, every day. He loves it. And she, and him seeing her try, he's seeing her try, even though she rolls her eyes at us sometimes, you know, even though, and, and him seeing her hang in there conveys yeah. that mm-hmm. she gets it. She knows it's important to him. So therefore it's important to her. And that helps him stay energized and, 
um, be gentle with her, find a little bit of humor in this difference between them, you know, so it's, it's yeah. the effort that it's the effort That's right. that counts, even if both people are not ever as nerdy and invested in self-development at the same exact amount. Before we go, I want to touch on just one quick thing. It's not a quick thing. I'm going to open a can of worms, but why not? <laughs> why is dating so challenging right now? Mm, I'm, yeah. I'm asking this for, for my audience and also for me. <laughs> no, I know why it's challenging for me, but yeah. Why do you feel like it's challenging right now? I think we have two things happening at the same time that are in opposition to each other. Mm. Dating is becoming highly commodified Ugh. with dating apps yeah. and swiping and low accountability and transactionality and consumer mentality. Yep. At the very same time that people are excavating not just their own souls, but their entire lineage, you know, like, yes, right. And those two things don't go together. Once you've excavated, no, once you have looked at, you know, your grandma's trauma and became your mom's trauma, became your trauma. Once you're doing that, you cannot just freaking start swiping and have that feel like anything besides a total energetic mismatch. How does that differ though from like the way we used to do things? And I'm talking before dating apps, like, you know, before the internet where we'd like meet someone at the, at a bar, right? Mm-hmm. Like, cause we didn't know anything about that. We know, we knew, le- you know, probably less about them than we knew, say, like on a dating, even on Tinder, right? Right. Well, but it wasn't volume. There wasn't the volume. I there think that the there volume. wasn't. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You could only, maybe you could meet three people in one evening or have like three, right. you know, you, you really if couldn't that. like, <laughs> right. yeah. Like you could be at Trader Joe's and swipe on, I don't know, 30 people while you're right. waiting in line. For right. Yeah. So right. I mm-hmm. think it's a volume issue. Okay. I think it's, de- I think it's degrade. Like, there's that sort of degrading like the way that technology kind of degrades quality of connection versus even if you're at a bar, if you're at a bar, you can see their whole body. You can see how they move in space. You're reading the nonverbals. Like we're animals, right? So you can at a bar, even if you're, it's super casual and you're total strangers, you're still taking in so much like subcortical data, right? Like parts of your brain that are just involved to sense safety and danger. Mm -hmm. Those parts are making sense of your experience in the bar in a way that there's no way they can, even if the Tinder profile has got, you know, 10 photos on it. And you're not necessarily, I mean, you might be, but you're not necessarily going, well, maybe there's someone cuter behind her or maybe they're right. It's like, Yeah. You're actually having an experience with someone. Yeah. 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 It's, it's a lot. I mean, I started online dating when I, when I got divorced, which is almost 15 years ago now. And, you know, profiles were long and there was no algorithm, you know, and people Mm -hmm. were, uh, you know, said a lot about themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the 10 year anniversary of Tinder NPR had had me on as a guest on one of their, um, on one of their shows along with a couple of women. Um, yeah, along with a couple of women who study, they have a podcast where they study the business of technology. And so they did an Mm -hmm. entire season on the business of dating apps. It's called, their show is called land of giants. Mm -hmm. And so they did a whole season on dating apps and they were basically made the point that you just made, which is, you know, the technology companies figured out how incredibly much money there is to be made on dating apps. So dating apps have now become gamified in and the thing and what sells is your frustration and keeping you unhappy and keeping you swiping. That's how the apps are making money. So the the deck is stacked against 
people in the dating world. And so I think that there's there's two choices. One is to become a savvy as hell consumer of dating apps and to get on there, know that it's a tool that you are going to use and you're only using it to get off the dating app. You're doing it to meet the person in real life. You're not there to build anything on the app. That's not what the app is designed for. Or two, to just, you know, to to go back to the old school methods. And the research shows that, you know, yes, half of couples meet on dating apps, but the other half of couples are meeting through family and friends at the gym, you know, in the more old fashioned ways. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it feels like dating apps are the only way to meet people, but they really aren't. Half of yeah. people are are doing it the old fashioned way. So the choices are either, you know, use it, make it work for you or mm-hmm. opt out and know that you're far from the only one who is opting out. I'd like to find that that group of people that's opting out <laughs> in Los Angeles, in right, Los Angeles. I mean, right, LA right. is so hard, but yeah, absolutely. I'm hoping I've, I just have hope that it, and I, maybe it's naive that it's kind of going to start going by the wayside when people, yeah. more people are like, this is not right. This isn't working mm-hmm, for me the way that mm-hmm. social media, right? Like we have this push and pull with social media. Like I need it. I hate it. I need it. I hate it. <laughs> you know? Right. That the pendulum will kind of swing a little bit more mm-hmm. back to yeah. center. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then the other, then we still have to solve the other problem, which, and I, and you tell me if this, if this lands for you, which is that there are a lot of us who are really into depth and richness and creating relationships that are founded on a growth mindset and, um, you know, relationality. And that mm-hmm. that's, you're not going to, you're not going to not partner somebody who is not doing the same. Nope. I mean, can you imagine? Like, mm-hmm. I, if you were single, you <laughs> like, would you? Mm-hmm. Like, there's no way, no, no. no way, uh-uh. absolutely not. So, absolutely, yeah. No, I, I'm a hundred percent agreement with that. And it's, and that's, it's harder to find. Again, like you know, women are consuming this so much, yeah. and and n- men are not as much. And so, finding the men who are um, mm-hmm. is the important part. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, so much, so much. <laughs> So, all right, Alexander, tell everyone where they can find you and where they can buy your book, most importantly. Yes. My website is dralexandrasolomon.com, and that's got links to all of the things. I'm active on Instagram at dr.alexandra.solomon. And then this book, Love Every Day, is available wherever wherever you get your books. I love to send people to bookshop.org because that's they will connect you with your independent bookseller, but of course, it's available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and Target, all the places. I love it. So the book is Love Every Day. Highly recommend 365 relational self-awareness practices to help your relationship heal, grow, and thrive. (laughs) Dr. Alexander Solomon, it's always such a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on. I love talking to you. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Divorce Survival Guide podcast. If you like what you hear, head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen in and leave me a review. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at the Divorce Survival Guide. I'll see you next time. And until then, remember, you, my love, deserve to be happy.